For the week of May 29th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media, perched in my usual place behind the microphone in Washington, D.C. On her perch to the east of me in northeast D.C. is Catherine Hamilton, a partner with the clean energy consulting firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, in true policy wonk fashion, it sounds like your life has been consumed by obscure FERC orders over the last week. Yeah, it's awesome. I love FERC. But mostly I had a great time over this uh, three-day weekend at a wedding in Schenectady. So you're saying you have a life outside of FERC? I do. I just want people to know that, that I don't just wonk. (laughs) Well, we'll wonk out about that because it is a very important story and uh, a lot of developments have happened around FERC in the last week. Uh, Jigger Shaw actually has a life as well. He is back after his vacation. You know him as the founder of Sun Edison and as a clean tech investor. Jigger, what did you do on your vacation? I understand you were in Crimea helping all those wind and solar plant developers renegotiate contracts after getting stranded by the Russian government, right? Exactly. Crimea River. <laughs> but uh, no, it was fun. I was in Greece and Turkey, and it was beautiful. And actually, I was on the island of Milos, and there was this big, huge solar array right around the bend when I was driving up to my place. Haven't haven't they scaled back all payments to solar arrays? Are they actually even operating in Greece anymore? No, Greece is fine. They like they they actually I think that they had some partnership with the German government to try to bring more economic development through um, renewable energy. Hmm. So the German government bailed them out after the financial crisis, and now they're bailing their solar developers out. Well, at least this way, this bailout actually creates jobs. <laughs> all right. Well, good to have you back, Jigger. Let's talk about what we have in store for this week's show, and that means introducing our guest. It's Erica Mackey. She is the co-founder of Grid Alternatives, a nonprofit deploying solar exclusively for low-income communities, and she is joining us from California. Erica, welcome to the Energy Gang. How are things out there in Oakland? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. And uh, what, what's, what's new out there in California? Any exciting projects you're working on? Let's see. Uh, I got to meet Obama um, and uh, Grid Alternatives sort of pledged to uh, install 100 megawatts over the next 10 years. So exciting stuff here. Wow. When did you meet Obama? Was that when you were in Washington or was he out there in California? No, he came to California to uh, talk about 300 agencies and companies that uh, pledged to put renewables on their buildings and um, deploy solar. And so was talking about energy efficiency and solar and, um, you know, getting everybody to stand up and pledge to the president what we're going to do. Yeah, we saw that announcement. Cool. I didn't realize you were part of that. And your co-founder, Tim Sears, was recognized by the White House recently as well, right? Yes, it's been a good White House uh, month. Well, we have brought Erica here to address the elephant on the roof, the lack of solar access in low-income communities, and the lagging number of women employed in the industry. So we're going to address how to make the solar industry truly equitable. Then we'll go into Catherine's sweet spot of FERC regulation and ask if a recent court ruling against the federal regulator will hurt demand response. We'll go to Wall Street for our third segment and mull the meaning of big investment firms downgrading the utility sector. And at the close of the show, we will attempt to tell you something you do not know. 
First up, how to create an equitable solar industry. So Erica Mackey has won a lot of awards, like a lot of awards, more than most of us could ever hope to accumulate in our lifetimes. Since 2001, Erica and her co-founder Tim Sears have executed on a simple vision. Bring solar to everyone, not just the typical wealthy homeowner or corporate customer. So here's Erica talking about that vision last fall when receiving a leadership award at MIT as part of the Women in Clean Energy Symposium. And I was being flown around the country by uh, my company, saving millions of dollars for multi-million dollar corporations on their energy costs. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around why is it that multi-million dollar businesses um, who should be saving money are saving money um, on a, their energy choices and wealthy environmentalists who should be saving money and should be making environmental choices are able to do that. But my neighbor in Oakland, who can barely pay her bills and is struggling month to month to hold on to her house can't have access to this incredible technology and why is it that her neighborhood is crisscrossed by highways and there's a power plant down the street and why is it the young person standing on the corner and needs a job can't get that experience to get their first job in solar where I see solar growing everywhere and yet those folks were not getting those jobs Grid Alternatives model is very simple. It's not too complex. I didn't invent anything. I just said, if we get all of us together, we can change that. So you are installing solar exclusively for uh, low-income communities and, and doing it in a way that uses local people in the community to help install the project itself. Uh, so far, I think you've done around 12 megawatts of projects or so. So Erica, explain to us how your model works, and maybe go into more detail of why you started it in the first place. Sure. I mean, you know, I come out of energy efficiency, um, as does the other co-founder of Grid Alternatives, Tim Sears. We're both mechanical engineers by training and used to work in the energy efficiency sector, doing renewable energy, energy efficiency, consulting for large businesses. And, uh, you know, that was just after the energy crisis here in California. And, you know, we just really couldn't understand why families that are so desperate for the needs that solar, um, the savings that solar provides, couldn't have access to that, you know, amazing technology on their own rooftops. And, you know, these same communities are living downstream from traditional power generation. And so, you know, from the environmental side, have the greatest need as well, um, and then, you know, really thought, well, gosh, how could we do that in a way that also trains up communities, gives people the skills they need to get jobs in the growing industry? And so it's really a very simple solution. Um, you know, you and me and somebody who needs a job all come together and help hand panels up to a rooftop and mount them and, you know, wire up an inverter. A low-income family participates in the actual installation and maybe cooks for everybody and, you know, goes, gives a talk at their church, mosque, or synagogue saying solar's for people like me. Um, and we have a triple bottom line. A low-income family gets long-term savings to help them put food on the table and send their kids to school. A job trainee gets hands-on experience that they can parlay to get a job in the growing industry, and we all get clean power. Yeah, and so you know, I know that you're looking at models where you're leveraging the growth of the uh, the uh, no money down you know solar industry. Do you want to talk a little bit about 
you know, some of the work you're doing there and how that's going? Yeah, I mean, if you think about the the major federal incentive is around tax, right? And so that that almost categorically leaves out low-income families. And so we've been working really hard over the last couple of years to try to figure out a way that you can, one, save families significant dollars and leverage that tax. And so, you know, we now have a, you know, a partnership um, with NRG that we're working on. Um, and we're talking to um, a bunch of folks about, you know, bringing in um, the ITC into our work um, and are already doing that in Colorado now. Yeah, I'm really curious how sort of your model is going to meet, and I think Jigger was getting to that, is going to meet the other financial model for real sustainability and really to scale it so that everybody does have access to solar. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're we're doing that because of these partnerships with, um, you know, other entities that can, you know, take the tax, um, the, take the, the tax equity and um, turn that into financial resources that we can use to deploy solar. I'm curious to know about any other models that you see that have been successful in terms of getting people access to the internet, getting people access to laptop computers, either in their homes or in schools, uh, closing the, the real technology gap that we've seen grow in this country and, and elsewhere. Any good examples from other industries that you're trying to apply to solar? Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of the two places that we really look at is um, the growth of affordable housing um, in this country. If you kind of think about um you know, there there's really become a robust industry that, you know, is similar to what we're talking about, where there's a sort of nonprofit business model at its core, um, but also um, really leverages tax equity um, and brings in the private sector and also works very strongly with government um, and does that in a way that has consumer protection at its core. I mean, I think, you know, We've seen in the housing market what tricky financing and, um, you know, housing can can do to low-income communities. And so I think the affordable housing world is a really important model there of getting long-term quality housing um, out there for low-income families to live in. Um, Another interesting model like that is um, the world of low-income energy efficiency, where um, that is primarily federally funded, but... um, you know, is funding that allows a lot of nonprofits and for-profits to install weatherization and energy efficiency measures in the homes of low-income families. You know, you guys announced a um, partnership with Sun Edison um, around bringing more women into the industry as well. And I'm just, you know, curious whether you could talk a little bit more about um, the goal of that program and and what you guys are, you know, trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think. You know, it goes back to um, what I'm talking about, about sort of pluralism of solutions. And I am, you know, absolutely convinced that we aren't going to find the right solutions to climate change if we don't include everyone's voices in those solutions. Um, It's just imperative to making sure that we have a solution that, you know, and the solutions that are, you know, the right solution. And so I think women's voices are really key to that. And, um, you know, this uh, partnership came out of um, the award that you talked about at the um, 
the beginning of the show where I got this, you know, Women in Clean Tech Entrepreneur Award through the Department of Energy and flew from that award ceremony to SPI. And I went to the CEO breakfast at the Solar Power International Conference. And there was a woman checking us in and a couple of other people there, but I was the only female CEO in the room. Um, and then that combined with all of these companies looking around and saying, hey, we're big businesses now. We're maturing organizations and we, you know, need to hire as many people as we can to grow. And all of a sudden they look around, and they say, hmm, gosh, we're missing half of the workforce here. Um, and so, uh, you know, Ahmad Chatila and I, um, the CEO of Sun Edison, hatched this idea that we would basically take uh, Sun Edison as an employer and an employer that really cares about, um, you know, recruiting and uh, bringing in women and promoting women and grid alternatives as this excellent training model and a way to really sort of highlight um, inclusion and equity in the solar industry. And we would bring us together and grid alternatives would train a thousand women over the year and we would do women's leadership builds and we would, you know, do women women's builds and we would provide fellowships for women um, and Sun Edison would, you know, jointly with us support our work um, and also do their part um, to sort of be a leader in the industry by employing women. Yeah, this is something that's really important to me. There are a lot of women who listen to this podcast who are in solar. I talk to them quite often. And moving away from the SPI booth babes that they were really taken to task for to really showing that women can be leaders in this space, um, it still is really um, evolving. I, I mean, I worked in the utility sector in the 80s, and I was quite used to being one of the only women who I was out in the field working, and there just were, there weren't very many of us. And then moving into the financial sector in the 90s and 2000s, private equity was terrible. There were no women in that space at all. Um, and the environmental community has more women. But I was just talking to a woman at Distributed Solar East last week who said she was one of about three women there. And it, I just think it's so important for us to tell our young women and young professionals that um, that this is a great space, get mentorship programs put into place. Um, and it just sounds like you're really on the right track, but we need to do more. Yeah. And I'm actually just curious, Erica, what you think the structural problems are. So there seem to be more women in the solar industry than in other trade industries, but it's still relatively low. What do you see as some of those very real barriers that you're trying to address? Are there any particular structural issues that you see either in trade schools and the way the training programs are set up and just in women's interest in the trades and how we message around those? What do you think? I think there's a lot of things going on and there's, you know, within the sort of lines of what Grid Alternative does, we can't solve every structural problem. I do think solar in particular is this very interesting combination of sort of a, a startup mentality plus technology. Um, and I don't think that there has been any malintent, but I think that people tend to hire who they know, who they went to business school with, who they, um, you know, people who sort of think and look like them. And so it has, you know, it has such an opportunity as an industry to be out in front and to, you know, to be more inclusive. But in many ways, it sort of followed an old boys network, just younger, um, and so um, I think 
we need to highlight the women who are in the industry because there certainly are. We are here um, and we're really making big changes. And so there are great women to highlight. Um, and we also need to provide sort of meaningful opportunities for women to touch and feel the technology, um, see their own faces, talk to people like them. And, you know, that's where I think Grid Alternatives is playing an important role is that, you know, every single one of our installations. So if we do a thousand, every one of those is a two day install where 10 people can touch and feel solar and make it happen. And so, you know, we're, um, you know, we're really putting a focus on making sure that women are provided with those opportunities and they're great, safe learning opportunities. You don't have to have tinkered under the hood of your car um, growing up from age eight to be able to come out to an installation. We'll teach you everything you know. And so, it's been a great way for us to really do what we do, um, but bring more women in. And women volunteer with us and go into sales. They go into um, installation. They go into R&D. Um, and women who actually work at companies come out and volunteer with us because sometimes they're financing solar um, at the utility scale, but they've actually never really touched and felt a panel or an inverter. I still, I still think there's something missing, though, from the conversation around women in solar. I mean, you know, I, when I was at Sun Edison, we had, you know, Claire Broido, you know, Johnson now, who was one of my co-founders, and we did a really good job, I thought, of bringing a lot of women into, into solar. But we were still at maybe 25 percent women or something, and you know, with all these women that are graduating from college at a much higher percentage rate than men, it it does seem like there's something structural that we're missing because I can't imagine that I mean I, I can't imagine that people are purposely excluding women from the solar industry. Oh Jigger, haven't you been reading the confidence gap? Um, I mean this is a this is a big issue for women and I love Erica's approach that we train people because if you can tell any kind of candidate, look, you don't have to have an engineering degree or you don't have to have X, Y, and Z skills that often women underestimate the skills that they have. Um, and men overestimate the skills that they have, and it makes a really big difference as to what job they get. And so for her to say, look, come one, come all, we'll train you. Anybody can do this who's got the training and the skills. I think you're going to, that structurally, you can change it by doing that. I also think, you know, we can't just do business as usual. There's some element of companies thinking like, well, we just, you know, got a barrel forward. I had somebody tell me, well, you know, there's just not an, I can't, I don't have time to look around for women candidates. There just aren't enough out there. So I just have to hire whoever because I need to grow really fast. And I think, you know, we're, we're losing track of the process for the end goal. And I think ultimately, if we take the time to think about the process and think about you know, what kind of work environment we have, you know, how are we, you know, developing leaders internally, you know, all of those sort of things that, you know, robust businesses. I talked to somebody at Deloitte who said, oh, well, they have a whole women's leadership program and they get people together. I mean, the solar industry just isn't there. People are just barely hiring HR people. Um, so I think, you know, we can't just expect to do business as usual and then uh, hope that women are going to join in if they don't see their faces and we don't, you know, really consciously recruit. Well, Erica Mackey, the CEO and co-founder of Grid Alternatives, this was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for the great work you're doing, and we'll catch up with you soon. And hopefully as you expand over this way, we'll see you in D.C. more often. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Yeah, this was great, Erica. Thank you.
Thanks, Thanks, Erica. Thanks so much, you guys. Last Friday, a federal appeals court in Washington made a very important decision. No, it wasn't about gay marriage or health care or EPA rules. It was about FERC Order 745. In 2011, FERC crafted Order 745 in order to compensate demand response providers in electricity markets the same way they would a power plant, by providing wholesale rates to people who were engaged in demand response. It put demand response on a level economic footing with conventional generation. But after a multi-year legal battle, an appeals court vacated uh, Order 745 and ruled that FERC overstepped its bounds by pricing DR, which, according to judges, should be left up to the states. So what does that mean for the burgeoning demand response industry? Um, Catherine Hamilton is engaged in this and understands this better than most people out there. So we are so thankful she's uh, part of the gang and on this subject. So Catherine, what just happened? What should we know about the long embattled Order 745? Okay. And first, I need to do a disclaimer because within my role in 38 North, I also function as the executive director of the Advanced Energy Management Alliance. And that is a group of demand response providers and consumers that are working together to make sure that these markets do stay open for consumers to participate in demand response. And within that role, um, John Wellinghoff, the former, former FERC commissioner, chairman of the commission, who really was the champion for Order 745, is our strategic advisor. So, we're we're all kind of wrapped around this issue in real time. Um, what happened was uh, was terrible on a number of levels um, because in the end it's not just going to affect demand response. But let me first just just give you a sense of. Um, what demand response is. So PJM looks, and that's the 13 states in the mid-Atlantic, the system operator for those states. They do an auction every three years where they, where they you know, take, take what's going to be out there for the next three years and what does that mean? And 10 gigawatts of demand response cleared in PJM last week for 2017, 2018. That is over 10 power plants what happened was when FERC made the order 745 when they ruled on it, uh, Commissioner Moeller, who is still there, did dissent on that, but he did not dissent based on whether or not FERC had jurisdiction over demand response at all. He dissented on pricing. And in fact, EPAC 2005 explicitly authorizes the commission to encourage demand response and other distributed resources. So it does give the commission, the the letter of the law does give the commission encouragement in promoting demand response and other distributed resources as it's fulfilling its responsibilities under PURPA and the Federal Power Act. So what this does, this ruling actually goes against the intent of Congress. It goes in, against the intent of FERC. The dissent was um, the dissent to this order by Judge Edwards. Um, it was a two-to-one decision, and the, the majority opinion was written by um, Judge Brown, who 
who didn't make the the points that we felt were the strongest to make. I mean, we we don't think it holds water. And Judge Edwards' dissent was very, very well written and should give FERC strong arguments for rehearing an appeal. Now, the issue is FERC should appeal this, and there are several ways they can do it. One is that they can ask for a rehearing. They can ask for a rehearing on bunk so that more judges can hear this case. There there are very strong points in their favor um, that would lead to a completely different conclusion um, and then, of course, if that doesn't work, they can then go to the Supreme Court. Now, the rehearing at the circuit court, FERC can decide that on their own. The issue right now, though, is that FERC has become so politicized. So people are looking at FERC now in a way that they haven't really looked at FERC before, which is um, you know, trying to make everything very political, uh, wrapping EPA's 111D into all of this, making FERC seem like you know activist kind of uh, agency. And so, you know, one of the jobs of the community that really cares about demand response and consumer savings, and consumers are saving billions of dollars a year, by the way, with demand response. So their bills would go up. Um, This community needs to rally around FERC and encourage them and say, this is really important. We need to do this. You all have the support. We can give you the cover that you, the air cover you need and the air support to do this um, rehearing and appeal. Um, And then if it goes to the Supreme Court, Court, of course, you've got a whole nother level of, you know, Department of Justice gets involved um, much more actively. Um, so that's kind of the situation right now. On top of it, First Energy then filed for um, FERC to stay demand response in the capacity market and PJM saying and this is this is in addition to the energy market to say, all right, now demand response is not allowed to be in the capacity market because it's, it's not real generation. Well, the problem there is that if you don't allow demand response at the capacity markets, there are a lot of other distributed energy technologies that are going to fall out too. If if you take a look at what is everything in the capacity market that isn't, you know, steel in the ground, fossil fuel power generation. So you just went through a lot of different elements to this. And I think we can just wrap up the discussion right there because you just knocked out every single point that I wanted to make. <laughs> no, but let, no, 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 this is great. So let's start from the beginning in terms of FERC's authority. Yes. So FERC argued that uh, because although, you know, demand response providers were getting um, – compensated the wholesale rate on a retail level because they were direct participants in the interstate markets, FERC had jurisdiction. But the judge ruled that uh, that that would make FERC, that would give FERC jurisdictions over, you know, the steel industry, over uh, fuels, over other things that it doesn't have legal jurisdiction over. So what is that tension? Is there is there anything real in what the judge said in terms of uh, FERC overstepping its bounds? Clearly, I know that you are in favor of or you are against this ruling, but is there any merit to what the judge argued there? No, and you're right. I am biased. Uh, But no, uh, I don't think that there is. Um, I don't think that there was a basic understanding of how state utility structures and the regulatory construct really works. Um, The judge referred to energy markets in the states that don't exist. So I think that there was a there was really a general lack of understanding of how it really works. And what the intent of Congress was for FERC to be able to have authority to do this. All right. So let's talk about the economics of this issue and uh, demand response providers getting compensated the wholesale rate, right? So there were a bunch of economists that wrote this argument claiming that 
the getting the paying the full wholesale rate to demand response is out of step with basic economics. And if anyone uh, has been reading this issue, go check out this piece from Jesse Jenkins over at the Energy Collective because he does have this nice piece summarizing uh, the, what these economists wrote about Order 745. And they basically said that by paying companies the full wholesale price for reducing demand, that that incentivizes a company to be less productive, i.e. cut consumption when it might not be necessary. So it essentially causes them to reduce consumption before they even need to, thus cutting productivity. And they argue that um, rather than just getting, rather than compensating the full wholesale rate, it should be compensating the, the wholesale rate minus the retail rate, which is basically what a generator gets. Not subtracting this retail rate would um, would allow the consumer to, quote, allow the consumer to sell its electricity at full rates without ever having bought it. What What do you say to that? Yeah, so ask folks that are members of this alliance, like Alcoa and Walmart, who actually bid into the wholesale markets and how, how they see this as this is not reducing their productivity. This is increasing their productivity, and they're saving billions of dollars every year, and they want the ability to choose to participate. From, from the point of view of the system operator, it doesn't, you know, generation doesn't have to be electrons coming out of a power plant. It could be electrons coming from anywhere. So it could be, you know, electrons that you're getting from storage or from wind or solar or efficiency or demand response um, of anything that a smarter grid would enable. So, you know, for and this is the way our grid is evolving. So to just say that, you know, steel and ground generation is the only way to produce electrons is just, you know, it's physically wrong and it's and it's economically wrong. Hmm. So, I mean, I think at the core of this, which which is on the macro side, which is really interesting to me, is it basically if there's a capacity shortfall in real time, the independent system operator starts cutting people off. Right. That's what you call rolling blackouts. And that's basically one form of demand response. And so now what the court is saying is that independent system operators have no real authority to pay customers for voluntary curtailment. But if there is a crisis, we're just going to cut you off and, and brown you out, right? It's sort of like saying it's, – it's, it's, it would be like the court saying that when an airline's overbooked, they can kick people off a plane, but they can't ask for volunteers whom they'll pay before they start the process of bumping people. I love that analogy. That's great. <laughs> and so First Energy is coming in and arguing – that they should get rid of capacity payments now for demand response, scrap demand response entirely from the market. You talked a little bit about this. Help me understand what they're arguing now. Yeah, they feel like if demand response can't be in the energy market, it should also not be in the capacity market. And it's that same argument that it's not real generation. Um, Big surprise from First Energy, right? (laughs) I know. And they've already come out publicly and said that they don't like any of this, uh, you know, strange distributed generation stuff. And so demand response looks to them like that. It doesn't look like, you know, a traditional generator to them. Um, And, you know, it's, it's the EPSA, which is the, you know, the the incumbent generation group that really pushed hard on to vacate uh, order 745. That's all part of this. And, you know, they're under a great deal of threat. Um, The issue is that system operators like PJM see an incredible value from demand response and they've kept going on it um, regardless of until, until things kind of settle out and they know what, you know, they know what they can really, you know, what decision they can take on it. But, you know, it's really critical to the way PJM operates the grid. 
So, but, I, but I think you're – But honestly, Catherine, I think that First Energy bit off way more than they can chew here. If you took a look at Michael Canellis, who wrote a piece on this in Forbes, his last paragraph was basically – you know, such an amazing, amazing conclusion, which was very soon you could see Walmart, the Sierra Club, car makers, and virtually every employer in a region standing on one side of the aisle during hearings on electricity rates and utilities standing all alone on the other. It will be yeah. kind of lonely. Yes, that is correct. And and we're going to crush them when that happens. And it's already happening. That's why we're crushing them. The fact that First Energy has paid and bought everybody off in Ohio is sort of beside the point. I mean, First Energy is going to war with AEP there too. But I just think that 99 out of 100 times they're losing right now. And it's just sad to see them die. And let me jump in here because Enernox said in its statement after this ruling that wholesale payments were like 2% of its revenues over the last few years. So capacity payments are much, much bigger part of its customer base. And then also, I'm just still not quite clear what the legal footing here is beyond Order 745 and these wholesale payments. Like I don't, I still am not quite picking up how this could go, go further into 111D or go further into capacity payments. I, I don't see the legal footing yet. Well, by First Energy starting this, uh, FERC now has to set forward a process to to deal with that complaint. And so there will be 45 days from some date that FERC acknowledges this First Energy complaint. And it may it may actually – I'm not sure when the clock is going to start. It may start from the circuit court decision. But basically 45 days to, to respond. And so you will see a lot of responders talk about capacity and how it's completely different and how this should not be at issue. So it's not to say that it's going to happen. It's just that it's an enormous threat and it causes, um, you know, a lot of hanging, ringing and consternation when, you know, things have been working well and, you know, policy is moving forward and this could potentially take it backwards. Well, I can't say it's a surprise that coal dominant first energy is attempting to cut demand response at the knees. It has fought to get rid of energy efficiency standards. Uh, The CEO, Tony Alexander, has been very clear about not understanding any of the value of distributed generation. So, uh, you know, we can certainly see where First Energy is going with this versus uh, most of the other players that are active in this space. Let's go into our final subject. It turns out that we're not the only ones talking about the decline of the traditional utility. Wall Street analysts are increasingly downgrading the utility sector due to fears that power companies and regulators aren't doing enough to prepare for distributed generation. We're looking at you first, Energy. Since last December, five major Wall Street firms have issued reports warning investors about long-term underperformance in the utility sector, specifically highlighting solar and storage as the disruptive combination. Barclays and Goldman Sachs are the most recent firms to weigh in. Uh, And last week, analysts at Barclays concluded this, quote, technological change creates precisely the environment where slower-moving incumbents and their regulators can fall behind the curve, risking credit volatility or disrupt the regulatory compact, possibly leading to unexpected losses for bondholders. So what are we to make of these continued warnings? Are Wall Street firms just jumping in on the intellectual bandwagon, or should we be taking this as another sign of deep structural change in the power sector? Jigger, what do you think of these reports? Well, I mean, the thing that... I think people just have a really hard time getting their hands around is that the vast majority of the electric utility generation sector is is traded on the wholesale 
market. So they don't have power purchase agreements that give them guaranteed revenue. So for instance, last week, um, three nuclear power plants for the first time um, with Exelon didn't get um, their share of the capacity payments within the capacity market because they bid too high a price for their capacity. No one in a million years would have ever guessed that baseload nuclear power plants wouldn't have been included in a capacity market. And and that's just the start of it. So what's happening is a lot of these guys spent billions of dollars to put steel into the ground. And because of solar going off the charts, according to Green Tech Media and SIA yesterday, and all of these other technologies like demand response and energy efficiency and stuff taking off, they're getting paid far less than their models predicted for the power that they're generating. And that's really hurting them financially. A few things jumped out at me from these reports. One is that people are now talking about battery storage, distributed battery storage in a very serious way. The second one was um, from this Barclays analysis, which talked about investors being the forces of change behind how utilities embrace this stuff. And they said that this was a rare opportunity for investors to express their views to utilities about the need for major change by selling off bonds um, and making their voices heard. Um, and then the third piece is comes from this conversation I had with our uh, VP of GTM Research, Shale Khan, and he said, you know, I think a lot of these analyses do kind of assume that these changes will happen in a vacuum and that regulators aren't going to catch up. And Barclays sort of alluded to that and said, um, we think that these changes are going to be out ahead of regulators and, and that causes some real problems for investors and, and utilities. And you know, he, his thought is, this is not the end of the utility. It's going to be a messy time over the next decade or two. Um, but some of the analysis itself sort of assumes that many of these changes are going to happen in a vacuum, which, of course, they don't. Well, and I think what you're seeing is not just changes in regulators, because it is going, they are starting to think about this differently. But from the utility standpoint, when you see the deregulated sides of utilities like Duke Energy investing heavily in energy storage, the, the utilities need to change the way they think about assets and the way they value those assets, because that's how they get rate recovery. And so if they can... If they're able to say, all right, wait a second, I'm going to be able to get rate recovery by doing this set of things on the distributed side that I can call assets, then they're going to be able to, they're, they're going to do that. And that will help push the commissioners too. Yeah, but the thing is, is that, I mean, I talk to utilities regularly and I'm actually surprisingly getting paid by a utility next week to go, um, or a couple of weeks from now to go meet with their board. But, you know, the thing is, is that they they willingly accept false data as fact because they're incapable of actually processing the truth that's coming upon them. Well, like For instance, what, what kind of stuff? I hear utilities say all the time, well, renewable energy is raising our rates here. And when I show them data that proves unequivocally that renewable energy has been responsible for less than 2% cumulative of all the rate increases since 2000 in the United States, and yet all of the rates have gone up about 60% across the country since 2000. So 58%, your crap business as usual practices. 2% renewables, they're like dumbfounded. They're like, oh, that must not be right. 
And I was like, what do you mean it's not right? It's from the university down the street that bears your name on it. And utility commissions are saying the same thing in their analysis. But, but, but the thing is, is that like, it doesn't bother me one way or the other. If electric utility rates keep going up, then battery solar combinations will be something that people do or microgrids or whatever it is that people can do to get out from underneath the tyranny of the utilities. My challenge is, is that it's absolutely going to help. It's absolutely going to hurt the elderly and the low income folks who are going to get stuck on these utilities of the past. And I just think what's what bothers me and the reason I'm so passionate about this is that these utilities are deliberately lying to themselves because it makes them feel better and it allows the CEOs there to make one more year of $15 million a year salary before all the bricks come crashing down on top of them. Yeah, and good for you, Jigger, going in and uh, giving some advice. Well, we'll see if they actually uh, listen, but, you know, the money's good. <laughs> Let us finish up the show now and uh, tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, do you have any good stories this week? Uh, yes, just uh, just another shot at First Energy here. And uh, Jigger sort of alluded to this. In Ohio, um, they passed in the Senate and House a bill to um, freeze their renewable portfolio standard and energy efficiency standards to study the mandates because they feel like they're unreachable. The governor, John Kasich, plans to sign that bill. Um, it's unbelievable that this happened because, uh, you know, there are 126,000 green jobs in Ohio. It is a huge part of their economy. NRDC has some great um, highlights on their website that show that, you know, Ohio is the sixth state in the nation with green jobs. Um, and this was this was when the Ohio Manufacturing Association, religious leaders, Honda, Anheuser-Busch, they were all fighting to keep the renewable portfolio standard in place. And um, unfortunately, uh, the utility won out. The, the the first real legal loss or the first real legislative loss on this issue. Yeah, there have been a string of wins, and this is kind of the first real bad one. Yep. Jigger, got a good story this week? So um, last week, Ernie Moniz tweeted out this Onion article and said, are we sure this Onion article is satire? After all, the dateline is Cambridge. And the Onion article was titled, Scientists Politely Remind World That Clean Energy Technology Ready to Go Whenever. Oh, that's and great. I didn't even see that. It's extraordinary. <laughs> and for him to tweet it out when he's the one who, who like refuses to admit our stuff is ready to go. Like, and then in the article, they have these like fake people quoted where it's like, we've got solar, wind, geothermal. We're all set to move forward on this stuff whenever everyone else is. <laughs> and, then at the, and at the end, it's like, um, let's see. Again, we're good to go on this end. Just let us know. You seriously <laughs> should see these new hydrogen fuel cells we have. Anyway, just say the word and we'll start rolling it out. <laughs> I, I did not see that. I will disagree with one thing. I have heard Ernie Moniz in a couple of recent speeches talk about the industry as if it were ready now. No, no, no. Hold on. Like, Will Ernie Money say on the record that we can be 80% zero emission by 2030? Well, NREL does. Right. But will Ernie Moniz say on the record that we can be 80% zero emission by 2030? I don't know. I don't think anyone's asked him. Yeah, I guarantee you him. that he would not say that we're ready. I think he would he say would. we need natural gas as a bridge. We need more coal. Well, let's get him on the podcast. Yeah. I'll let's do it. Well, uh, I've got a couple noteworthy stats to talk about that were just released right before we started recording. Um, so this morning, 
We saw data that's showing uh, in Q1 of this year, the U.S. saw a 1% drop in GDP, which is a pretty rare occurrence when a country isn't in recession. Um, and at the same time, our analysis team released some new solar installation figures showing a 79% increase in solar installations compared to the first quarter of last year. So a piece of good news there. And I'm not trying to compare the two. I'm well aware that comparing an increase in solar installations to the factors behind GDP decline is not really accurate. But I think it's helpful to see how growth in solar installations and jobs have continued in spite of all the economic ups and downs we've had over the years. So quite quite significant there. And even more interesting was this shift that we saw in the new numbers for the first time, residential installations outpaced commercial installations in the U.S. Uh, in a quarter, and that was due as much to a dip in resident, or uh, as much a, to a dip in commercial installations as it was a surge in residential. But a testament to how steadily the smaller scale DG space is growing. All right, that's it. We are done for the week. Thank you all for listening to the show. To access links to some of the stories we covered on the episode, go over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. You'll find our back episodes there and myriad ways to subscribe to the show. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is The Energy Gang, and you can find the three of us individually on Twitter as well. And our, uh, our accounts are linked on The Energy Gang account. If you want to send us story ideas or comments, shoot them over to my email address. It is lacey at greentechmedia.com, L-A-C-E-Y at greentechmedia.com, and I'll pass your note around to the rest of the team. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, good luck with all the FERC stuff. Have a great weekend. Get away from uh, the legal morass. Thanks. You have a great one, too. Thanks. Jigger, welcome back from your vacation. I bet New York is not as good as Greece, but uh, hope you have a great weekend as well. Thanks. Well, it's always good to be back in New York. Absolutely. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.